Let's go. So Ephesians 3, Ephesians 1 and verses 3 to 14. If you just follow with me in your Bibles. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined to us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Amen. And, and Father, we, we do thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your inspired word. Father, we just thank you for that list, Lord, for that glorious list of all of the blessings, Lord, and all of the promises that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. How we thank you for that and how we praise you for that. And Father, I pray that as we look into this great inheritance that is ours this morning, Father, may we be encouraged and, str- and strengthened in our walks with him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, I'm very pleased that, you know, we've had a few heavy messages, but this morning we've got a real feast to look into, something really positive and uplifting. And uh, we're thinking really about this idea um, in the first chapter of Ephesians of blessing. We're thinking of this idea of blessing. If I said to you, what, who would you think of as a blessed person? Who is a blessed person? I think that first of all, you'd be tempted to think of somebody, often two, two things we often think of. We often think of people who have good health and people who have money. Good health and money. If you've got good health and money, you can enjoy life and you can do well in life and life is satisfying and and good. Um, Now sadly, sometimes you see people who have one or the other. Um, As a GP, often quite a sad situation, you see people who move to uh, Munsley, they move to the North Norfolk coast and they think that they're going to have this great retirement with all the money that they've saved up in the city and they move 
um, to, to the North Norfolk coast. But then sadly, people can often get sick um, and unwell. And so if you don't have your health, your health is really the greatest blessing that God can give you. Sometimes if you don't have health, you can't enjoy the wealth, if you see what I mean. Um, but some people, they have good health, but then they struggle financially. Um, and so it's often these two ways that we see blessing. We see blessing as financial, or we see it often as health. Um, it's no good having the, you know, the luxury yacht in the Mediterranean if you're not well enough to be able to crawl up into the yacht and go on the cruise. So we think of blessing in these material terms. Now, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> it's true that material prosperity is often seen as a reward for obedience. In the Old Testament, material prosperity is seen as the way that God blesses people and that God puts his mark of approval on their life. So if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 11, you see God say, God says to, um, uh, to the Israelites, he says, the Lord will grant you plenty of goods in the fruit of your body and in the increase of your livestock and in the produce of your ground, in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. So physical blessings are indeed a good thing. They come from the hand of God. And we should be thankful for those things. It says in the book of James, it says that every good and perfect gift, so all the things, the physical things that we enjoy in our lives, come down from the Father of lights. They come down from God, who is the good giver. And with him, there is no variation or shadow of turning. So every good thing, all the, the family relationships that you enjoy, the good things you enjoy about your work, maybe you don't enjoy all aspects of it, but the good bits of it you enjoy, um, your friendships, um, all those positive things, they come down from God, who is a generous giver, the Father of lights. But in this passage that we're looking at, we note, first of all, the word spiritual in verse 3. And it says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the New Testament emphasis veers away from this idea of physical blessing to spiritual blessing, to the unseen world, to the world that we can't see beyond this world. Um, there is a world of spiritual blessing, spiritual realities, and notice that, first of all, they're spiritual blessings, but secondly, that these spiritual blessings, it says that they come in Christ. It says we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So in a very real way, it means that every believer in Jesus, if you're a believer in Jesus, we all have equal access to all of these spiritual blessings in Christ. So in earthly terms, there can be differences between us. Some of us have more money than others. Some of us have better health than others. But in the things that are going to last, there's an equality. You could say that because we're united with Christ, because we have access to these things in Christ, there's a sort of a spiritual communism. You know the idea of communism, which is that everybody partakes, everyone has the same. Well, that's much the same in Christ. We all possess these blessings in Christ in equality. Even if we don't have physical things the same way, we all have that access to Christ. So there's no room for spiritual capitalism. 
You know, where one person has more blessing than another. One person's owned more blessing than another. Because the way that we receive those blessings is through Jesus Christ. And we all have equal access to that. So I hope that that fact alone is an encouragement to you this morning. That you have equal access, if you're a believer, you have equal access to those spiritual blessings in Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, but what I want to sort of speak to you about this morning, what I want to just look, about, um, look at this morning really, is just very simply going through, there's a lot here, and so we just want to break it down into a very simple way really, but three main points, um, three key ideas really, and those key ideas that our entire lives as believers are blessed, past, present, and future. Every facet, every aspect of our lives is blessed. Our origin, our past, our present, and our future. So first of all, if we look in verse 4, we think about our past. Um, And it says there that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So our past is blessed because of God's choice in eternity past. So many of you, many people have very difficult backgrounds. If they look at their past, if you look at your individual past, the past that you've come from in your own life, you may find that there are a lot of struggles there or a lot of unhappiness. Um, Maybe there were problems between your parents. Maybe there were problems in your relationships. Maybe some of you had, you know, arguments at home between your parents. Maybe there was just um, a difficult atmosphere in the home, a sort of an icy atmosphere and a lack of love. Um, Maybe there was marital breakup. Maybe there was even, in the worst cases, abuse. Maybe there was ill health that blighted your childhood. But each of us will come with our stories of how our own childhood, our own origins were broken in some way. And it's very hard for people to ever really get over those problems because our childhood has such a formative impact on us. As we go through life, it's very difficult to break off that yoke of those things that affect us as we're growing up because we're so formative as children. We're very vulnerable. And, and we're like putty um, in the environment that we We have all these forces, these external forces acting on us, and we're very subject to those things. And they continue to have an impact on us right the way through our lives. And we see people like that all the time. And so even as Christians, we can be tempted to define ourselves in terms of those difficult pasts, in terms of those difficult experiences that we've gone through. And we can think, I'm never going to make any progress in my life relationally or Um, you know, even just in other things God's called us to do in our careers or in our service for him, because we can feel like we're defined by our past, we're defined by those difficult experiences. But this is a wonderful truth that we see here, that even though those things may be true, that there's a greater truth, that before even our childhoods, before even we were born, before even our parents thought of us, the Bible says that God chose us. God chose chose you. He chose you to be adopted into his family. He chose you for a purpose. And his purpose, he didn't just choose you for no reason, but he chose you for a purpose. And the purpose he chose you for 
was to be conformed to be like his son, Jesus Christ. It says here um, that he predestined us to be adopted as sons by Jesus Christ um, to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So God chose us for a purpose. So our past is blessed. Our past may not feel blessed, but it is blessed in reality because we're chosen by a loving God and we're chosen for him and we're chosen for relationship and we're chosen for fruitfulness. I can't, we can't teach through the scriptures um, without making a few, particularly this scripture, without making a few comments about this teaching that we get great comfort from. Um, but this teaching is what we call the doctrine of election or the biblical teaching that God chose us. The biblical teaching that God chose us. And this idea of God being the one who takes the initiative and God being the one who calls us and draws us, rather than us just making a decision, you find that that's throughout the Bible. It is clearly taught in the scriptures, this idea of God choosing us. And in fact, Jesus himself talks about it. He says in John 15 and verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. And, and as I've sort of looked at this and thought about it more, the other thing that's very clear from the Bible about the fact that God chose us is that the reason he chose us was not because of any merit or any good thing that we had done. If you think about this passage, it says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. So before we'd had the opportunity to do anything good or bad, or before we even existed, God chose us. And, you know, he didn't choose us because we were more lovable than anybody else. He didn't say, you know, oh, Joe, you know, he's such a, such a nice guy. I'm, I'm going to choose him. Um, you know, and he didn't say that about any of you. He didn't say, you know, you know such a nice guy. I'm going to choose them for my kingdom because I want them on my team. Um, but God chose us in spite of ourselves. Um, and we learn about how God chose when we look at the people of Israel, when you look at the Jews. The Jewish nation had a tendency to think that they had done something to merit God's favor and that they were higher than all the other nations and that, that they were it. You know, they were the nation, they were the chosen people. But God really blows this idea out of the water. He says in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, he says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. So the reasons for God choosing us lie within himself. There are reasons for God choosing us, it isn't an arbitrary decision of God, but those reasons lie within himself and they are known only to God. Because it says in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29, it says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever. So, so there's a secret, a hidden will of God. There's a mystery. We don't know why God has chosen certain people, but it is the undeniable teaching of the Bible. And actually, it goes against everything we experience as human beings. I don't know whether any of you have ever been to select a puppy. Um, 
you know, maybe you've decided that, you know, your, the, the life in your home would be livened up a bit if you had a puppy. And so you go to the dog kennel, and um, you look at all of the puppies that are there, and do you choose the most sort of, I don't know, uh, ugly or strange-looking puppy? Well, you might do because you feel sorry for them, but normally the puppy that you, you'll choose will be the one who's most adoring, you know, the one who looks at you with those sort of loving eyes, and you go, oh, I'm going to choose that puppy. Or... Um, you know, it's sports day at school. I mean, I was, I've got to say, I was never very athletic, as you can probably imagine. And I was always sort of left to the end and probably like left to rake the sandpit or something. Um, but, but if you're wanting someone in your sports team, you want someone who's good at athletics, someone who you think can, you know, has some kind of athletic skill or prowess. Um, if you want someone in your business, if I'm going to try and hire someone for the surgery and administrator, I want someone who knows something about, I don't know, someone who can type or do something to contribute to the business. You want the right person. But God chose us simply because he loves us, period. He chose us because he loves us. And the Bible says that he hasn't chosen the great things of the world, but he's chosen the weak things and the foolish things and the things which are not and the things which don't seem to be anything. He's chosen those people. So that's the mystery of of election. And it is a wonderful truth. But where people run into dangers with this, with this biblical teaching, and this is what I want to just briefly talk about, some people have run into problems with the doctrine of election. And the reason throughout the history of the church that people have run into difficulties and problems with this doctrine is that they've tried to overly systematize it. They've tried to put it into a logical A equals B, B equals C, because God has chosen people, therefore this. And you have all of these systems throughout the history of the church, Calvinism, Arminianism, Amaraldianism, three, four, five-point Calvinism, Um, and they've tied themselves in knots. And I just want to say, this may not apply to many of you here, but for those of you who have a tendency to, to look into things and to think theologically, a word of caution, really. Just because the Bible says that God has chosen us because of no merit on our own, that doesn't mean that other biblical truths are not true as well. We may not be able to reconcile those things, but it doesn't mean that they're not true. So some people, be very careful of people, be very, very careful of people who who say things like the following. They'll say, well, because God chose us, it means that Jesus didn't really die for everybody. It means that Jesus didn't really die as a sacrifice to cover the sins of the whole world. That is a false teaching. It says in the Bible, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So Jesus died, his sacrifice was sufficient for all men and women. Very clear. The Bible is unambiguous about that. What's also very clear from the scriptures is that in at least some sense, in at least one sense... We may not be able to describe exactly what that sense is, but in at least one sense, God desires to save all humanity. That's also true. Although God has chosen people, he also desires that all men will come to a knowledge of the truth. It says in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What some Christians have done is they have said, 
All does not mean all. Any does not mean any. And world does not mean world. But we have to just keep it, we have to just teach the the truths of the Bible as they are. God's chosen us for reasons in himself. The reasons he's chosen are not revealed to us. But Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And God has a universal love for all humanity. And he desires that all men would come to repentance. Now, you may then think, well, well, we can't, we can't, you know, we can't put all these things into a, logical, into a logical sequence in our minds. But then I think that just leads us to humility. Because we aren't God, are we? None of us are God, you know. And I love the psalm. There's a psalm, I can't remember which one it is, but it says that as a newborn baby, I've, I've, learned, to, I've learned to kind of um, settle myself as a newborn baby. And I haven't looked into things too high or too lofty for me. But I've just settled myself in that calm assurance that God's chosen us, that God loves us, but also that he loves all men in one sense as well. Um, And we do see that there are problems when people have emphasized one aspect of biblical revelation at the expense of another. So Christians who have emphasized God's choice sometimes have been guilty of becoming very, they haven't desired to evangelize, they haven't desired to outreach. William Carey was one of the first, um, uh, the pioneer of missions, um, and the church at the time said, um, why are you going to evangelize everybody? Because it's all in God's will, it's all under God's control. Why do you want to evangelize and go out and evangelize everyone? Um, But then we see those who emphasize human responsibility have put so much pressure that they've become very legalistic in the way that they lead their lives. It all depends on us. Um, and they've tried to use approaches that are maybe not good to press people to make decisions. So, so there, is, there is a wisdom there, and there is a balance in the Scriptures and in what God says. So that's enough about that. Um, but finally, I want to just say my third point really on election is that this teaching, it leads us to a humble gratitude, a humble gratitude rather than a complacent boasting. We understand that we bring nothing to God. We bring nothing to the table. Whatever gifts we think we have, we bring nothing to him. Um, There's a hymn that says, um, nothing to you I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. You know, naked come to thee for dress. You know, we bring nothing to God. We bring nothing to the table. But he lavishes us with his grace. Amen. He lavishes us with his grace. And also this doctrine gives us, this teaching gives us a new confidence. We know that God's hold on us is far greater than our hold on him. So maybe you feel that God is going to let you go this morning, but his hold on your life, his hand on your life is much stronger, much greater. His grip is much stronger on your life than your grip is on his life, than your grip is on him. So our past is blessed. Our past is blessed. God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Um, to, be adop- to, to, um, to be adopted into his family. But the second point, just moving on, is that not only is our past blessed, but our present is blessed too. Our present now is blessed. We are blessed now because we are adopted into God's family. We're adopted into the family of God. Um, and as I've talked about the effects of family on us, of our own upbringings on us, and all the ways in which our own families um, fall short, and talking about you know how many in this church 
Um, I was talking to, to people this morning, someone who's visiting the church and others, um, about the importance of adoption ministries, about the importance of creating that security and, and that warmth and that emotional warmth in the life of young children so that they'll always be secure. Um, but, but, but for us, the family unit, it mirrors the sense of security um, and the sense of warmth and the sense of belonging and unconditional acceptance that we have in the family of God. And so we're adopted into his family. We're adopted into a divine family. And it says in verse 5 that we are adopted into God's family. And it says in verse 6, and I love this, it says, according to the good pleasure of his will. So we're adopted into God's family because he wants us to be there. Have you ever felt unwanted? That idea of children tragically sometimes feeling unwanted, as though no one really wants me, of going through your life feeling unwanted. But it says there that we're adopted into God's family according to the good pleasure of his will. So God wants us in his family. It's his pleasure, it's his good will to have us adopted into his family. Um, and it says in verse 6 that we are accepted in the beloved. We are accepted in Jesus Christ. Because God loves Jesus and because God couldn't love anyone more than he loves Jesus, he accepts us in Jesus. He loves us as much as, Je- as he loves Jesus. We are accepted in him. This wonderful language of, of adoption. And then it says in verse 7, if you follow with me, it says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So in him, in other words, God didn't just want us, but he was pre- prepared to pay the highest price for it. That he redeemed us through his blood. Um, Nothing more precious than the precious blood, the shed blood of his own precious son. We were reading the other day um, in uh, 1 Peter, and it says that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. So not only did God want to, not only does God want us in his family, not only does he adopt us, but he was willing to pay for it as well. He was willing to pay for it. And then it says in the end part of verse 7, it says, according to the riches of his grace. So now we are in God's family. We are heirs to the family fortune. We've been born into the wealthiest home we could imagine. And we now have all the access to the family fortune, the riches, the immeasurable riches of God's grace and his mercy and his strength that never run out. Amen. So all those good things that we have. And I just want to talk a few more about some of the other blessings that come from being in God's family. The blessings that come from being adopted into Christ's family, God's family. And first of all, you know, I want to say that because we're adopted into God's family, we have access to our Father at all times. You know, a good father, I think, will always try to be there for his children. He'll always try to be emotionally available for his children. He'll always try to be someone that his children can go to and turn to, and he'll always try to be, be there for him. But human fathers, they just can't literally be present all the time. They have to work. They have other responsibilities. Perhaps they're unwell in this fallen world. There are various reasons why a father may not get to be physically present at all times, but hopefully fathers are always emotionally available for their children. But it says that God is the father who is always there for his children no matter what time of day or night it is. God is that father who is ever present. He's always there for his children. You can always run into God's arms 
You can always have that chat that you need with God because he's always there. Um, It says in um, Romans, it says, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So there's that spirit within us that calls out to God. We're no longer orphans. We don't have this orphan spirit, but we have the spirit of adoption, that God is our Father. And so maybe we struggle with our own parents. Maybe we have issues with our own parents, but we're not orphans. We're not alone because our Father is always there for us in Christ. We have access to him. But secondly, we don't only have access to the fatherhood of God, but we also have new siblings. We also have new brothers and sisters in the family of God as well. So, so often as Christians, we just think about me and my relationship with God, me and my Bible, me and God, me and Jesus, having some time together. Um, But that's not the case. And we've received a new family, brothers and sisters. And the new life that we've received in Christ is a corporate life. It's a life that we have together. We're all united in Christ together. We share in Christ together. And we're very individualistic. Our church culture, um, I think, um, in the West, and even as as evangelicals at times, can be very, very individualistic. We think we just come to church, we come and hear whoever's preaching, and they'll bore you for, I don't know, 40 minutes and try and speak to you about the Bible, and then we'll sing some songs, we'll look at a screen and we'll sing some songs, and we kind of think that that's what Christianity is, and we kind of think, well, as long as I go home and I pray and I seek God, and me and God are fine, then that's all there is to it, but we don't realize that God has called us together. He's called us to a corporate life, and so part of being in, adopted into God's family, it's not only having this wonderful open access relationship to God, but it's also having that degree of relationship with each other as well. We've got new siblings. We've not just got a father, but we've got brothers and sisters too. Um, and 1 Corinthians talks about this. It says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. So we've got that new closeness in the body of Christ. But thirdly, um, the third aspect of being part of this family, this new family that we're all part of, is that we have a responsibility to live up to the family name. Now, I'm a Kemp, um, obviously, and so people may well, particularly when you're younger, when you are a child, people will judge the family um, by the way often that the children act. And maybe that is not so much a thought in Western societies, but certainly in... um, you know, Eastern Oriental societies, you can bring great, great shame on your family. You can destroy your, your parents' life and reputation by being a source of dishonor for them. Um, so I represent the Kemp family. Um, but do you know what? There's an even greater uh, privilege. We are representing the Jesus family. <laughs> so your surname, in a sense, is Jesus. Well, not really, but, but it's almost as though that's the case. Jesus names the whole family. It says in, um, in Ephesians 3, it says, later on in Ephesians, it says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The whole family in heaven and earth is named. So, so we're representatives of the Jesus family. And, and do you know what? Most people in this culture and most people in this con- country they don't come into, they, they've never read the Bible, and they've never been to church. Um, they have no conception at all of what the Christian faith is all about. 
You are Jesus' family. You are the Bible that they read. It's you. You're it. <laughs> you're the only, you know, that's kind of, you know, a bit of an overwhelming thing, isn't it? But you're it. You bear the name of Christ. I bear the name of Christ. And so pe- when people think Christian, they think Joe or John or Adam or Josh or, or you know, whoever. That's, that's what they're thinking. They're thinking, this is the Christian that I know. These are the people who say that they follow Jesus. You know, we're it. We've got to be mindful of that as well. We need to be good ambassadors for this family as well. So, so anyway, our, our past is blessed. Our present is blessed. But let's just think about the future for a minute as well. So our future is blessed. So I'm um, looking at verses 9 to 14. It says, our future is blessed because we have an inheritance from God. Our futures are all heading up towards this grand summing up of all things in verse 10. It says, In the dispensation of the fullness of times, he's going to gather into one all things in Christ. And the Greek word is this word, anikephalio. Anikephalio. And it means this grand summing up. And you remember, you remember it's this grand restoration. Do you remember in, um, in Romans, it talks about the whole creation is subject to the bondage of decay. So this whole physical existence which we are in is under a curse. The Bible says it's under a curse in a sense. I mean, we know it's not cursed in the sense that it's, it's not good. I mean, um, God has given us many good things. But there's also an imperfection or a marring that comes from the fall. Um, and <clears throat> everything is winding down. Everything is wearing out, including our own bodies and including everything that we see physically. It's all, it's all this bondage of decay. Um, you know, if we think of the second law of thermodynamics, I don't know whether any of you physicists, but it says that inbuilt into this fallen creation, in the second law of thermodynamics, it says that there's a natural tendency of any isolated system to degenerate into a more disordered state. So things are naturally um, becoming more chaotic. There's this idea that things are becoming more chaotic. They're becoming more disordered. And it's woven into, sort of mystically almost, it's woven into the fabric of the universe, this wearing down, this wearing out, woven into our own bodies. But the the, the great thing is, is that one day there's going to be this glorious cosmic renewal. There's going to be this great day of release. And the curse which has rested on creation and on our bodies and on the physical creation is one day going to be lifted. It's going to be lifted. There's going to be this great um, gathering together of all all things in Christ. And uh, when Christ is revealed. So it's talking about, in a sense, people recognizing Christ's lordship, but it's also it's greater than that. It's this renewal of the earth and of the creation that we're looking forward to. Um, but you know, as believers, you know, it says here in verse 11, it says that in him we've obtained an inheritance. We have this great inheritance, this great access to this spiritual bank account, if you like, that we're waiting for. We have, we have something in heaven, um, something which Jesus said, Build up for yourselves treasure in heaven where, you know, where moth can't break in, where thieves can't destroy. We have an inheritance kept for us um, in a place which nothing can ever destroy, nothing can ever um, diminish in any way. It says, Peter describes it like this. He says, we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And I love that. I actually love the way that that says. It says it's beyond the reach of change and decay. 
And in a world where everything is decaying, in a world where everything is winding down and wearing out and cursed, we have something which is beyond the reach of all that, something in heaven with Christ. Amen. And he also says that we have a guarantee of that inheritance now. We enjoy a guarantee of that inheritance now. Um, in verse 13, it says, that, um, it says that in him you also trusted, you heard the word truth. It says, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And that word guarantee is the Greek word arabon, arabon. And it means the first installment or a deposit. And I just want to explain the difference here. So you know when you're going to get married, which I am shortly, uh, well, not shortly, but later this year, a few months, um, you give a wedding ring as a sign of a promise. But the wedding ring is not a part of the marriage experience itself. It's just a sign. But what he's talking about here, it's more like putting a deposit on a house. So know if you put like a deposit or your first instalment on a house, it's actually part of the whole. It's very much part of the whole. Do you know what I mean? It's the first installment that goes towards it. So it's not just a sign, but it's actually, in a sense, the Holy Spirit is a taste of heaven inside us now. It's a foretaste of heaven. It's not just a sign that we're going to have the Holy Spirit in the future, that we're going to you know, have the marriage, enjoy the marriage in the future, but it's, a taste, but it's actually a taste of, you know, if you like, the marriage or the union with Christ or the heaven now. We have it now. We enjoy it now. And we don't realize this as Christians. Sometimes we think we're looking forward to everything in the future, but we enjoy it now. We have a foretaste of it now. We enjoy it now. Not in perfection, but we have it now. Um, and so, finally, verses 12 and 14. We just have this phrase that's repeated again and again and again. And it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. If you look at verse 6, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. In verse 12, it says, to the praise of his glory. In verse 14, it says, it ends, to the praise of his glory. And so, <clears throat> the fact that our life, the fact that our life is blessed, past, present, and future, the purpose of it all is for the praise of the glory of God's grace. It's that we can realize how blessed we are, how fortunate we are. We've, we've kind of struck jackpot. We've, we've hit gold. Um, and because of that, we are brimming with, with enthusiasm. We are brimming with worship and joy for Jesus Christ, for the praise of his glory, that our lives now are going to be for his glory and for his honor because he has given us so much. Things that we can't find anywhere else in the world. Where else can we find a perfect acceptance? Where else can we know that we're chosen and we're adopted into a family? Where else can we know that we're wanted? Where else can we know that we're forgiven? Where else can we know that we can have an inheritance that nothing else can take away, that nothing else can change? It's only here. It's only in Jesus Christ. That's the only place we can get those things. And because we have those things, that means that our whole lives whether you look back to your past, whether you look at your life now, or whether you look ahead, every aspect of it is, is blessed. Your future is bright. You may not feel that your future is bright. Often, we often don't. But our future is bright. We are a blessed people. And because of this, we want to live our lives now in thankfulness for all that he's given us, for all of the riches of the glory of his grace.